All right. Welcome to Theological Equipping Class, Fall 2020. Come on in and grab a seat. Hope that you are doing well. Feel free to uh, sit wherever. You can tell there's plenty of space during COVID season. Let me pray for us, and then we will get into the lesson this morning. Almighty God, we confess that you are great, and we are not that you are God, and we are not that you are infinite, and we are not that you know all things, and we don't. And so we just ask for wisdom. Your word says that if anyone lacks wisdom, to let us ask and that you will give it. And so we're asking with right motivations that we might know you, that we might uh, serve you, and that we might love others. So I pray that you'd bless this semester as we deal with these different topics. I pray that we would be uh, salt and light uh, in the community around us. So we love you and thank you. We want to ask all of it in Christ's name. Amen. Well, welcome to Theological Equipping Class. This semester... Social and political theology. You've wanted it. We've been wanting to teach on it. So here it is. Now, we're not just doing this series of lectures to be spicy, all right? We like spice. We like that stuff. That's, that's part of the fun of Parkway, but that's not why we're doing it. We're doing it for two main reasons. First of all, these are topics that the Bible deals with. We are commanded to teach everything that Christ has given us, so that's going to include everything the Bible does say about government and about social issues and these kind of things. Additionally, these are the questions that we as pastors are getting asked. You see, back in 2019, back when the world was good, the questions that I would get asked about as a pastor would be about Calvinism or about the end times or whatever. But since 2020 happened, almost exclusively, people have questions about race or they have questions about justice or they have questions about the government's response to the pandemic or whatever it might be. And so uh, hopefully uh, you see that we're not doing this just because these are controversial. We're doing these because we want to provide resources for our people. That's part of equipping our people uh, to do the work of uh, ministry is to address these questions. So today is going to be this introductory lecture. Today is going to set us up for the rest of the semester. In the following weeks, we're going to have lessons on race, on feminism, on biblical versus social justice, on these kind of things. And so I encourage you as we go through this series to keep an open mind. I hope that you are not in the exact same spot on every single one of these issues at the end of the semester that you are today. I hope that you've shifted at least a little bit. Some of these lessons will be the official position of Parkway. For example, when we talk about being pro-life and against abortion, that's an official Parkway position. Other topics, though, are not a position that Parkway has taken an official stance on. Parkway doesn't have an official stance on the environment other than, you know, steward things well, but beyond that, we don't really have an official stance. We don't have an official stance on Christian economics. We don't have an official stance on Christian education or whatever it might be, but on other topics, we do. And so keep in mind the importance of the topics will vary from week to week. Lastly, as we often say here, if you get upset, don't get mad, get coffee. Okay? So if you want to talk about these issues more, we love that. We love getting coffee and having conversations and having lunch. These are difficult issues that you can't usually deal with in a tweet or an email, and so we would love to chat with you. If you're somebody listening online, please don't send us an angry email that is uh, completely lacking in humility, but rather ask to sit down and talk about these issues so that we might be mutually edified. So with that in mind, let's start with our introductory lecture today on Christians and government. What should we think about Christians in government and the government generally? Let me start with Parkway's uh, statement of faith when it comes to government. It says this, we believe that civil government is of divine appointment for the interest and good order of human society. Magistrates are to be prayed for conscientiously honored and obeyed except in the things opposed to the will of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is the only Lord of the conscience and the King of the kings of the earth. 
Though our ultimate hope is not in governmental policies or politics, Christians have an ethical responsibility to the extent that they are able to promote and practice biblical justice and morality to and within a lost and dying world. Three things you need to see in that definition that are really important. First, God is the one who determines nations. He rises nations up and he makes them fall. Isaiah says that all the nations to God are as a drop in a bucket. God is the one that is sovereign over who is elected. God is the one who is sovereign over what happens in a nation. That's the first thing you need to see. And that Christians are therefore to obey those in authority unless they're asking us to sin. The second thing that you need to see is that our hope in this definition is not ultimately in politics. Our hope is ultimately in the kingdom. It's in Christ. We're to be involved in politics, but that's not our ultimate hope. And then lastly, Christians do have, to some extent, a responsibility to be involved in the culture around us. We're not allowed to create this little weird Christian subculture and not engage with society, not engage with politics at all. When you do that, you're not being salt and light. When you do that, nobody gets saved because nobody's doing evangelism, okay? So let me explain something real quick before we move on. In the Bible, God holds kings accountable for how well they rule, right? Everybody good with that? Okay. In a democratic republic like the United States, God has taken that king and broken it up into about 350 million people. And so you have at least a 350 millionth responsibility in God's eyes to try to use your vote in a righteous way, to try to enact righteousness, to try to promote morality, promote the gospel, promote freedom of speech and religion, etc. So know that we live in a society that is different than Jesus lived in in the first century because you have a say. And so you do have at least a small uh, part of responsibility of what happens in society on your shoulders. First, let's start with some things the Bible teaches about government generally, and then we'll get into all the juicy stuff, okay? So first... Number one, God has established the rule of law, order, and the government for the good of mankind, and Christians are commanded to submit to the government, okay? So for all of you with a come and take it sticker on the back of your car, let me let you hear this. Romans 13, one through seven. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who's in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. Now look at this next part. For anybody that would say, we shouldn't fear the government, we shouldn't have to be afraid of the police, or whatever it is, listen to what it says. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword or the pistol or the rifle or the predator drone in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection subjection not only to avoid uh, God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing, pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. First Peter 2, 13 through 21. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, i.e. living as lawful citizens, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants for God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. 
Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing, when mindful of God, one endures sorrow while suffering unjustly. Notice that if somebody is above you and not treating you well, it's not take back the power or rebel, it's suffer well. That's the Christian position, by the way. For what credit is it when you sin and are beaten for it if you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you've been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps, okay? So the first thing you need to see is that Christians are commanded to submit to the government. Now, here's a great question. What happens when several governments are over you and they disagree? So you realize as an American citizen, you have the city has some authority over you, the county has some authority over you, the state has some authority over you, and the federal government has some authority over you. What do you do if they disagree? We want to submit to the government. That's our heart. Our heart is to submit to the authority God has established. But what happens when they disagree? What do you do? Do you go with the smaller government, the one that's closer to you? Do you go with the larger government, the federal government, because it's more powerful? What do you do? This is a great question to ask during COVID season. I don't know if you know this or not, but there were certain cities that said that churches could not meet during this season. And then the state governors came out and said, that was never legal. You could never tell the churches they could not meet. What do you do then? Because they're saying different things and they're both authorities and you're trying to submit to them. What do you do? Here's my answer for you, by the way. You submit to the one that's right. It's not that you just submit to the local one. So some will say, well, you always submit to the local, the smaller government. Well, that's not true. If California decides to forbid all firearms, you would say that's illegal because the Constitution guarantees the right to bear arms. But conversely, when the federal government says that gay marriage is legal, Texas has a right to say, we're not going to recognize gay marriage if Texas wants to. So it's not that you always go with the bigger one or always go with the smaller one. Here's the biblical position. You go with the one that's right. What do I mean by right? First, biblically. If it's a biblical issue, the Bible has told you what to do on that and you go with that. If it's not an issue addressed in the Bible, you go with the one that is most likely legally right based on things such as precedent, etc. okay? We'll have uh, more about that kind of stuff later, but keep that in mind. Number two, however, Christians are not to obey the government if they're asked to personally commit sin. In the same way that a wife submits to her husband, but not if he tells her to sin, in the same way, we are to submit to the government unless they ask us to sin. If the government says, Zach, when you go into Walmart, you have to wear a mask, I'll wear a mask because that's not sinning. If the government says, Zach, you must uh, perform a gay wedding, I will not do that because that is sin, okay? Now, I'll give you a few passages here. There are like a thousand we could read, but just for time's sake. Acts 5.29, after the apostles are told not to preach the gospel anymore, respond this way. But Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. Or in Daniel 6.10, when King Darius makes it a law that people cannot pray to God, it says this. Right after the king makes this law, Daniel does this. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, so he's not ignorant of this, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open towards Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. So you submit to the government in everything, whether you like it or not, is irrelevant. But if it's sinful, then you don't have to. Third point. Christians are to pray for their leaders whether they like them or not. Ezra 6.10, that they may offer pleasing sacrifices to the God of heaven and pray for the life of the king and his sons. 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 2, first of all then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings, and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. That's number three. Number four, 
Christians may critique. Now, let me, let me, before, let me interrupt myself. You as a Christian have a right to critique the government. You as a Christian have a right to critique positions and people. That's part of the job of the church. The church serves as a prophet to the government. That's part of our job. Our job as a church is to tell the government what they should be doing if we're talking about the church's job in the political sphere, okay? So it is okay to say this is not a right policy, this is unbiblical, this is unwise, this is unconstitutional, whatever it might be. You have a right to critique. Look at this next part though. Christians may critique but may not slander, misrepresent, or curse their political leaders. How is our culture doing on this one? How are our churches and pastors of evangelical churches doing on this one? Not great, okay? You have a right to critique policy. You even have a right to critique person, but you must do so with a sense of respect. You must do so with a sense of honor. You can't just slander. You can't just uh, curse. You can't just do that to the king. When you do that, to a small extent, you are mocking God who put that person in power, okay? Titus 3, 1 through 2. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. Ecclesiastes 10.20, I like this one. Even in your thoughts, do not curse the king, nor in your bedroom, curse the rich. For a bird of the air, let's just call that Twitter. That's kind of the bird of the air of our day. For a bird of the air will carry your voice or some winged creature tell the matter, okay? And then number five, Christians should work for the good of their country. When Israel and Judah get exiled, okay? You get Israel exiled in 722 to Assyria and then Judah to Babylon in 586, 587-ish BC. The tendency for them is to think, because I'm in exile, I don't need to keep being a good Jew. I don't need to try to help this nation. This is an enemy nation. I wanna be back in Israel. But instead, this is what God tells them to do. Thus says the Lord God of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its welfare you will find your welfare. Christians are to be a blessing wherever we are. If you're a Christian in communist China, you should be a blessing. If you're a Christian in America, you should be a blessing. If you're a Christian in North Korea, you should be a blessing. If you're a Christian in Canada, you should be a blessing. Wherever you are, you should try to be a blessing to those around you, okay? Government is not bad. Bad government is bad. Let me say that again. Government is not bad. That's a gift from God. The problem is only when it becomes corrupted that it becomes bad government. That doesn't mean that it ceases to be government. It does mean, though, that, uh, that it is going to be judged by God for the decisions that it makes. How should Christians engage with politics? Let's talk about five wrong views, and then we'll talk about what I think is the right view. Let's do five wrong views of how Christians should engage with government. Uh, Wayne Grudem's got a helpful section on this uh, in his politics book. I don't agree with him on everything, but I think this section's really helpful. First of all, some wrong views of government. How should Christians relate to government? Maybe you've thought about this. Maybe you've asked this question, okay? Here's a question I've asked to a group of guys that I'm discipling. When Constantine, quote unquote, converts to Christianity in the 300s, Is that a good thing for the church or a bad thing? On the one hand, you could say it's a good thing because now Christianity is a legal religion and it will go all over the place because of that. On the other hand, you could say it's a bad thing because the church is less pure, right? If it's the government-mandated religion, you're not really sure if that's what you want to do. You just kind of have to so you don't go to jail or get killed. So that's a question you can wrestle with. First wrong view of government, though, 
is that government should compel religion. Okay, that's the first wrong view of government. The government should compel religion. Now, why would some people think that that's a good thing to do? Well, because if you think that your views are right, then you should probably think that they're right for everyone else as well. To say it stronger, if God's commands are for human flourishing and for our good, then it is better to not commit adultery than to commit an adultery whether you're a believer or not. It is better not to steal than to steal whether you're a believer or not. So what some people say is, well, if my religion is right, then why wouldn't the government compel it for everybody? In fact, you have that throughout much of Western history. What's the problem with that view? Here's the problem. You get Sharia law when that happens. The problem with that view is that the government could compel the wrong religion. The government could compel the wrong religion. So if the government compels religion and they're off, now it's oppressive for everybody, okay? Uh, Who was it that came over from England to America? in the new world, long time ago? Yes, the pilgrims slash, more specifically, the Puritans. They came over on what ship? The Mayflower, right? I assume that the uh, January flower through the April flower just died at sea, and they come over at the Mayflower. They are called Puritans. Why are they called Puritans? What is that? I heard a mumble. Say it with confidence, even if you're wrong. Our, if our culture has taught us nothing, it's to have arrogance with ignorance combined. Okay, what do you have? What do, why are they called Puritans? Yes, correct. They, they are wanting to purify the Church of England. The Church of England, Anglicanism is the state religion and if you live in England, you have to belong to Anglicanism. It used to be illegal not to go to an Anglican church in England and they don't like how Catholic Anglicanism is and they want to purify it. And so they're given this name Puritans because of that. But what they're doing is they're saying when the government compels religion but not perfectly, now we're oppressed. So we want to go over to the new world so that we can practice our religion freely. Second wrong way that the government and Christians can be involved together is the government should exclude religion. Now, why do some people do that? Well, what they'll say is religion has led to a lot of evils in the world, which is true, okay? There have been a lot of evils in the world committed by those who claim to be religious, Christian or otherwise. And so what some people would say is religion is divisive, it hurts your country, so religion could be, should be excluded. What's the problem with that view? Then you get Stalin and the gulags, okay? then you get what happens in communism and Marxism and in socialist states where you have tons of people being killed and martyred. Way more people were killed by Stalin than Hitler. Hitler is junior varsity compared to how many people Stalin killed, including a ton of Christians, okay? So it's not good. Another wrong view is for the government to exclude religion. The third wrong view is that all government is evil and demonic. You'll see people that just think the world's corrupt, government's corrupt, so we should just have nothing to do with it. Okay? We should have nothing to do with it. Why do people think that? Because every government does indeed have problems. Okay? Every government is run by sinners, and sinners make decisions that sinners make. Now, the problem with that view, though, is this, that it is God who institutes government for our good. Okay? When you end up getting, having this view that all government's evil and demonic, you then get anarchy, which is not a biblical position. Fourth wrong view. Some churches would say this, do evangelism, not politics. So there are some churches that say, we will not talk about politics. We will not talk about social issues. They might even ask us at Parkway, why are y'all even teaching on this? Why don't you just do evangelism and not politics? Why do people think that? Well, they, they believe, and I agree with this, that it is more important to get people saved than to be involved in policies that affect our, our day-to-day lives. The problem with that view, though, is this. You have an ethical obligation 
to use whatever means God has given you to promote righteousness. When you follow this view, you end up becoming Gnostic, someone who doesn't like what's physical, they just like what's spiritual, or you end up becoming an Anabaptist. An Anabaptist is not a Baptist, those are not the same group. Anabaptists were this weird group that broke off the Reformation, that were pacifistic, that thought that Christians should not be involved in government at all. If you were a Christian, they believed, you were not a citizen. So I can say that I, Zach, am a Christian and also an American and also a citizen of the Republic of Texas. I can say all those things. The Anabaptists would say, no, if you're a Christian, you do not belong to any government, period. And they ended up being really divisive and uh, that kind of stuff. And so don't, uh, don't hold that view. The last wrong view is do politics, not evangelism, okay? A few weeks ago when I was critiquing bad pastors in my sermon, I mentioned guys like Robert Jeffress and Jerry Falwell Jr. And some people wondered why I mentioned them. It's because they preach America sometimes more than Christ, Okay? You can be patriotic, I'm patriotic, but this is Jesus' time. The church is to promote the gospel, the church is to promote Christ. It's not to come have the president speak in your worship service and sing songs to America. Okay? So some churches go too far and all they do is politic. Now why do they do that? I understand why they do that. Here's why they do that. You can't do evangelism if certain political rights are taken away. So they rightly understand that if society becomes too corrupt and there's not a strong Christian influence in government, all of a sudden Christianity could be illegal and then you're doing way less evangelism than you were, okay? The problem with that view is that the gospel must always be primary, okay? The gospel must always be primary. So those are five wrong views. What is the right view, okay? Here's the right view. That Christians should primarily be involved in gospel things, but secondarily should be involved in political and social things. But it has to go in that order. It's not that the politics usurp the gospel. It's not that you never talk about politics. It's that primary is gospel stuff. Secondary is these other issues, or are these other issues. That was what is secondary. Look at number one here on what should Christians think about being involved in governmental affairs. Realizing that the gospel is primary, we should secondarily be involved in helping those in need, protecting the life of the unborn, protecting our civil and religious liberties, holding those in authority accountable, promoting what is moral, fighting what is evil, and anything that promotes righteousness and human flourishing, all of which requires that you be involved in politics to some extent, okay? So I think the right view of how Christians interact with government is simply this, to have a strong Christian influence within government, okay? To have a strong Christian influence within government. Number two is my position, so we'll skip down to number three. I mentioned this earlier, I wanna mention it again. In a a democratic republic like the US, you partially help rule the country by your vote and will therefore be held accountable by God for how you use this small amount of influence. Listen to what I'm about to say because it is very condemning. So you need to know there's grace here. There's forgiveness in Christ, but you need to hear this strong point. In a system where you have a vote and you have a say, God will hold you responsible for how you use that vote, okay? So if a candidate gets up and says, this is my position, and if I'm put in office, I will do this, and you help get them into office, and they do that thing, if that thing is evil, you are guilty, right or left. If a candidate gets into office and they do something you didn't know they were gonna do, that's not on you. But if a candidate gets up and says, this is my view on foreign policy, and you elect them into office and they get involved in a war that they don't need to, that's on you. You will answer for that on judgment day. If a candidate gets up and says, I am pro-choice and I will try to give more money to Planned Parenthood, and you help put them in office, but Zach, I'm not personally pro-choice. 
I just vote for the pro-choice candidate. You are your vote. You have helped get them in office to do what they said they're going to do. And therefore, you bear some responsibility for that. This is a big deal, right or left. When the candidate gets up and says, these are my views, and you cast your vote for them, and you help them get into office, you will be held accountable for that. And if they're on the other side and they say, these are my views, and if you help me get into office, I will do them, you are responsible for that. This is where politics plays into your morality as well. Politics plays into your morality here as well. Number four, fun class discussion, real quick. Should you try to enact your morality into law? What are your thoughts? This is, by the way, if you've never been to theological equipping, it's not like the sermon. There's a little more back and forth-ish. It's weird for people listening at home because they just hear, but I'll sum it up. What are your thoughts? Yes, you should try to enact your morality into, uh, into law. Several people said yes. Okay, so would you encourage somebody who's of another faith to do the same thing? Do you want Muslims enacting this law where you have to pray five times a day towards Mecca? Wait, wait a second, I thought you just said people should enact their morality into law. You do or don't want people to do that. Not just Christians, people. Because the rights extend to everybody regardless of religion. Well, I'm confused. If you say yes, we should try to enact our morality into law, and then I say, okay, so a Muslim should try to enact their morality into law, you can't then say no. You have to be consistent. Yes, that's great. Yes, good. Yes, I agree with that. Uh, Elder uh, Wade has spoken. And I agree, yes. You as a Christian, that's not, that, okay, that's a good clarifier. You as a Christian should obviously try to enact your morality into law. Do you know why? Because, you know, people say, well, I don't want to read my morality onto other people. Then you don't believe it's true. If you really think your view of the Bible's right, you should absolutely be trying to read that onto other people. They're reading theirs onto you, okay? But the, the, the harder political question is, should all citizens be encouraged to try to vote in their morality? That's something you can talk about over lunch or in your community group. Number five, how involved should you be in politics, okay? How involved should you be in politics, okay? Here's the answer to that. It's gonna vary from person to person. Some of you will only be involved a little bit. You might be involved in major elections, that's fine. Others of you might be more involved in politics. You might help with campaigning. Some of you might even run for office, and I would encourage you, if you're a Christian, we need more Christians in political office, okay? We need more Christians in political office. It's gonna vary from person to person. The only point I'm trying to make here is you have some responsibility as a Christian who has a vote. This is unlike the first century when Jews are not considered Roman citizens with a few exceptions, guys like Paul, and you have a vote, you have a chance to enact change, you should use that to some extent. And then lastly here, are you confusing the role of the church with the role of the state? This drives me nuts, and people say this all the time. So listen, when somebody says, we should help the poor, I agree. Who is the we in that sentence? Yeah, we the church? or we the secular American government. Notice that the command biblically is for you to help the poor, not for you to put somebody in office to help the poor so you don't have to. Or we should accept the immigrant. Okay, again, who's the we there? You mean we the church? Sure, anyone can come to Parkway, okay? Or do you mean we a government that has to keep in mind things like borders and et cetera? Again, those get confused. Or how about this one? We should go kill the terrorist. Who's the we there? You mean like me and Dan Jones and Jeff? Like put on our parkway flags and go kill some terrorists? Or you mean like we, if we were to join the military and belong to the state, should go kill? So be careful, and this happens a lot with discussions of justice. In the Old Testament, Israel is a, uh, a theocracy. You've got the politics and the religion mixed. In the United States, you have separation of church and state. 
So you don't, those aren't, those, that's not a one-to-one correlation. The government's gonna do certain things that the church doesn't do, and the church is gonna do certain things the government doesn't do. The government doesn't baptize, the church does. The church doesn't go to war, the government does, okay? So keep those kind of things in mind. Now, some silly things I've heard Christians say regarding the government. Here's just some silliness, just some silliness. If you've said these things, I'm sure I've said these things too. We'll all have a laugh at ourselves, okay? A few things. Taxation is theft. You heard somebody say that? It's kind of a good Ron Swanson kind of thing to say, if you know him from Parks and Rec. Taxation is theft. Ironically, it's usually said by people who are using the protection of the military, the protection of the police, who drive on public roads and play at public parks, okay? Uh, But we've already seen biblically that's silly because the Bible's clear that uh, the government has a right to tax you. It doesn't say to what amount, but it doesn't limit what amount. The government has a right to tax you, and uh, you're not sinning by paying taxes even to a pagan government. So when Jesus pays taxes, or Paul says to pay taxes to the Roman Empire, they're way worse than America, and it's not sinful, okay? It's not sinful for you to pay taxes just because your governmental leaders will use them in a bad way, because they're primarily using them in a good way, okay? They just use some of it for bad stuff. Another dumb thing I've heard Christians say, Jesus wasn't involved in politics. We don't need to be involved in politics either. Two reasons why that's silly. One, his entire message is that the kingdom of God is coming to crush Rome, okay? That's a very political message, but two... Two, Jesus is in a different context than we are. Jesus in the first century is not a Roman citizen, and Rome is run by the emperor and a senate, okay? In America, though, it's different because we are citizens, we have a vote, we are in a different context than Jesus, and therefore we have to act accordingly. Number three, our citizenship is in heaven, we should only care about the kingdom of God. Don't care about politics at all. In the Bible, they don't care about politics, they just care about preaching the gospel. That's also not true. Let me give you a passage where uh, Paul will appeal to his governmental citizenship. Acts 22, 25 through 27. But when they had stretched him out for the whips, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? When the centurion heard this, he went to the tribune and said to him, what are you about to do? For this man is a Roman citizen. So the tribune came and said to him, tell me, are you a Roman citizen? And he said, yes. Notice that the apostle Paul just used his privilege for a culture that is evil, to avoid having to get whipped, even though he primarily sees himself as a Christian. Notice that all those things are true in that passage. Number four. This is one that people don't say directly. I've made it a little sarcastic, but it's the implication of what they say. Ready? Maybe you've heard somebody imply this. I can't vote for that person because they are personally immoral, so I'll vote for someone with an immoral policy instead. Okay? There's a lot of that. There's a lot of that person is personally immoral, So instead, I'm going to vote for another person who's also usually um, immoral as well, who also has an unchristian immoral policy. Listen, we vote policy, not person. We vote policy, not person. God will hold us accountable for what policies we try to put into place, not whether or not the leader is sleeping around or doing whatever it is, okay? We're not responsible for that. We're responsible for policy. We care about policy over person. Person does sometimes affect policy, but a lot of times it does not. People are able to separate those things and they're able to have good policies, though they might be an immoral person. Number five, I've heard people say this, Jesus wouldn't be a Democrat or a Republican. Now let me tell you where I agree with that and where I disagree with that, okay? On the face of it, I agree with what they're saying because both parties are flawed and because Jesus is better. Jesus is the best. You wanna know the most biblical form of government? When Jesus comes back and he rules as a sole monarch, okay? That's the best form of government, amen? Amen. Now, so I agree with what they're saying. Here's the problem and why I don't like that phrase, though, because I heard pastors use that phrase 15 years ago and still also use it today. Things have changed. 
The problem with that statement is it's like saying this, Jesus wouldn't be pro-life or pro-choice. Jesus wouldn't be for gay marriage or against gay marriage. Jesus wouldn't be, it forgets that a lot of moral issues have now become part of the political agenda, whereas 60 years ago, the difference between being left or right was really about like economics or whatever it might be. So uh, that's why I think that phrase is wrong at worst and confusing at best. Number six, sometimes people will say things like this, abortion is only one issue or they'll name some other thing, race is only one issue or whatever it might be. Listen, if I offer you a $100 bill and a 100 pennies, you don't take the 100 pennies because there are more of them. You take the $100 bill because it's worth a lot more, okay? Political issues are not all equally valuable. Some are way, way, way more important than other issues, okay? So if I say to you, how about this? Everyone, when it comes down to it, is a one-issue voter. Let me explain what I mean by that. If I say, okay, we're going to put this guy into office, and he's going to unite the country. We've been very divided. He's going to unite the country. We're going to flourish economically. He's going to be a strong military leader. But for some reason, he's got this mysteriously small mustache, and he hates the Jews, Do you elect Hitler into office because the Jews are just one issue? No, okay? So the fact that we kill 1.5 million of our own citizens every year, most of whom are minorities, by the way, and most of whom are women, by the way, and people treat that just as like, it's like tax tariffs. Those are not the same, okay? Those are not the same. Number seven, making sure people have a good life is being pro-life. That's not true. What some people will say is, okay, I'll I'll put in a candidate who's pro-abortion because if money was distributed differently, these people would have better lives. You're equivocating on the word life. Having the right to exist is way different than whether or not you have a good education after you are existing or whatever, after you're uh, being able to uh, live and be outside your mom's womb and these kind of things. So be careful that people that will equivocate on what it means to be pro-life. Number eight, if you care about politics, you must not be hoping in the gospel. That's not true. I care about a lot of things, right? The Dallas Mavericks, my family, whether or not I'm going to get wing stop later. That doesn't mean I'm not hoping in the gospel. You can have different levels of care. At the top is the gospel, Christ, God, or loving uh, the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And below that can be other things. Number nine, we can't really enact change anyway. You'll hear people say that. That's not true, okay? You can actually enact a lot of change by who you put into office, what you get involved with, what you promote in your life, how you influence people. It absolutely does matter. Number 10, We should promote some evil action to prevent more of that action. So I hear people say this all the time. We should have more access to abortion so that women don't have to perform them in their homes. What they're saying is that there should be a safe way to commit murder. There should be a way to where uh, we can actually support legally something that's evil because maybe there'll be less abortions if we actually do that. You don't ever get to do that as a Christian. You don't get to reason like this. Let us do evil that good may result. The Bible condemns that kind of thinking. And then 11, I don't want to read my morality onto other people. We've already talked about that briefly and why that is silly. Okay, now let's talk about some presuppositions in America's two-party system. Let me explain what I'm gonna say here and what I'm not going to say. I'm not gonna give you all the differences between Democrats and Republicans. There would be a bunch. We would talk about climate change. We would talk about types of schooling. We would talk about all kinds of things, okay? What I wanna do is give you this. I wanna give you some presuppositions between the two parties. America is cursed to have a two-party system, which polarizes people, okay? It's not like that everywhere in the world. We have a a two-party system that polarizes people. What I want to do is I wanna give you a little bit of history and I wanna give you the presuppositions of each side just so you can keep them in mind as we go through the semester. Does that sound good? Okay. 
First of all, let's talk about the difference between Democrats and Republicans in the two-party system. But I'm not primarily going to use the term Democrat and Republican because I don't want you to think what those terms mean today. I want you to think more historically what these terms have meant. And so let's talk about that. First of all, those who are Democrats are typically those who are on the left. I'm going to do this. I know this is your right. Just pretend I'm doing it this other way. Okay, I'll try to do it this way. On the left, they are a Democrat. On the right, they're Republican. Why are they called left and right? During the French Revolution, it had to do with parliamentary seating during the French Revolution. Those that were more conservative sat on the right side of the room. Those that were more liberal or progressive sat on the left side of the room. Additionally, their original colors were not what they are today. Today, you're red if you're Republican and you're blue if you're Democrat. That's not originally how the colors are. Originally, if you were right wing, your color was white, has nothing to do with white supremacy or skin color. And now it's red. Originally, the color of the left was red, not blue. Why is it the color of the left? Because red is the color of socialism, okay? Red is the color of communism. It's the color of the left. Think of the USSR, the glorious red army. Think of communist China. Think of North Korea. What are their state colors? Red. Red is the color traditionally of the left. It switched though today where red is now the color of those on the right and blue is the color of those on the left. Let's talk about some presuppositions here. Those on the right are more conservative, Those on the left are more liberal or progressive. Now, what do those terms mean? Let me explain what they mean historically. When I talk about conservative, I don't mean like stands up straight and wears a tie and is prude or something like that. I mean the historical conservative tradition with guys like Edmund Burke. Here's the big difference on whether or not you're a conservative or a progressive. Ready? Do you look to the past for old ideas to solve problems or do you look to the future for new ideas to solve problems? That's the big difference. Where is truth and goodness found? If you're a conservative, you say that truth and goodness is found in the past. Let's see what people have done. What is marriage? Let's see what marriage has always been. What is justice? Let's see what justice has always been, okay? If you are more progressive or liberal, you believe that truth and goodness is something that we don't have in the past. You don't like tradition. You want to instead look towards what might be the solution in the future. Let's look for a new definition of marriage, a new definition of justice, whatever it might be, okay? To quote one pastor I like, if it's new, it ain't true, and if it's true, it ain't new, okay? Now, in that sense, I'm not saying a Christian has to be a Republican, okay? What I am saying, though, is that a Christian, in a sense, is already somewhat conservative because we believe that truth and goodness is as old as God himself. We are looking to the past. Our job as Christians is not to come up with new stuff, it's to retain old stuff and then combat new heresies as they arise, okay? So those that are on the right have a tendency to look to historical ideas, whereas those on the left look towards new ideas. Those on the right tend to be traditional, whereas those on the left tend to be progressive. Those on the left uh, have a tendency to be more for democracy in the sense of mass rule, okay? Whereas those on the right want to have certain limits on mass rule, be more of a republic. So I don't know if you know this or not, America is not a strict democracy, You learn this every time a president is elected with the electoral college, but they don't win the popular vote and people say, but what about the popular vote? And you say, read the constitution, okay? We are a democratic republic. We are a federation of states. That's what America really is. But each group would agree with that, but they'll put an emphasis on different things. One putting an emphasis more on democracy and numbers. The other putting more of an emphasis on states' rights. Uh, Those on the left prefer a uh, larger federal government, where those on the right prefer a smaller state government, the idea being that those who are closer to you can govern you better. Uh, The way that they define equality is different. Why is there so much debate even in churches over what equality is in light of all the race stuff? Here's why. Left and right define equality differently. The right defines equality as constitutional equality. 
Equality before the law, legal equality, whereas those on the left define equality as do we have the same result at the end of the day or do we have the same starting point? I'll talk more about that in a second. I've got a whole section on that. Those on the uh, left would be more comfortable with a regulated market, Keynesian economics, et cetera. Those on the right with a deregulated market. Those on the left ask this question when there's a problem. What would be ideal? What would be ideal? Those on the right have a tendency to ask what would actually work, okay? Now, let me explain what I, what I mean by that. So let's use, uh, we'll have a whole lesson on environmentalism, so I'm not gonna give my views on global warming or anything, but let me just kind of set up the, uh, set the stage for you. Uh, those on the left, when it comes to global warming and the, and the environment, would say, here's what would be ideal. Let's do measures to help protect the planet, okay? Those on the right would say, okay, can we actually implement those things and will it change anything? So if America makes up less than 1% of the world's pollution and we just shut down everything, pollution stays really bad. So what solution would actually work? So they disagree on how to approach the problem. Those on the left promote utopianism, whereas those on the right have a tendency to promote realism. I'm not saying that these are necessarily bad or good, right? There's a sense in which we should be somewhat utopian, right? Especially if you're post-millennial, you have to be utopian, that things are getting better, whereas those on the right can be realistic. However, sometimes that can be too pessimistic. So again, there's not a perfect solution. Uh, those on the left have a different definition of rights, positive rights versus negative rights. Let me explain this. When you are guaranteed certain rights by the Constitution, okay, are those negative rights, meaning you have the right to be left alone. You have the right to pursue your own freedoms without having the government or others infringe upon that. Those are called negative rights, which is you have the right to not be messed with is really what negative rights are. Positive rights are that you have a right for the government to give you something, okay? That the government, you have a right to healthcare, a right to education, a right to abortion, whatever it is. So even as the two parties talk about rights, they mean different things by the word rights, okay? Those who are conservative by rights mean negative rights. I have the right to, be, to pursue my own interest and be left alone by the government, and I can go get the things I want, whereas those on the left will say, no, the government has an active responsibility to give you positive things, to give you positive rights. Lastly, those on the left are a bit more optimistic about human nature. Those on the right are less optimistic about natural human nature. Let me give you an example of this. So uh, when it comes to the gun control debate, right? Those on the left will say, hey, people are not all born sinful. And so the problem must be in this metal object, a gun outside of them. So let's get rid of those. Those on the right would say, no, this is a metal object. It's morally neutral. The problem is with the person. Even if they're not Christians, they'll say he's insane or whatever it is, but they disagree on human nature. The left would say people are basically good, so let's tax sugary sodas, right? That's the problem, the sugar. Those on the right would say, no, people have the freedom to drink what they want. The problem is that they're gluttonous, that they eat and drink things that are not healthy for them. So they disagree on these things as well. Let's end with this section, and uh, I don't know if we're gonna have time for Q&A. I think we will, uh, but I'm gonna go through this. I think this is really important. You must, throughout this entire semester, question your presuppositions. I'm about to give you some presuppos presuppositions. What are presuppositions? They're things you assume pre. They're the things you think before you think. They're the assumptions that you bring into an argument. Let me get you to question those, okay? I'm not saying that I agree or disagree with any of the statements I'm about to make. I just want you to question your assumptions. We have a tendency to think that democracy is a great form of, uh, of government, right? Yes, no? Yes, we do, we're Americans, we do this, okay? Yes, it's a democratic republic, but you still vote and the people are involved and the people all have an equal vote. 
that is a foreign idea throughout all of world history. Did you know that? But Zach, the Greeks practiced democracy, not like us. If you were a land-owning Greek male, you could vote, but not if you were a slave, not if you were a woman, etc. okay? And so this is a new view in world history. When Plato writes about government, here's how he sets up the best form of governments, just to, to challenge your thinking. He says the best form of government is a monarch or an aristocracy of philosophers. These are guys who have studied. Take the smartest people that are the most moral, that know the most about government and put them at the top. He says that's the best. If they can't rule, what's the next best form of government? A democracy. That's where the soldiers or landowners rule. Why would it be good for them to be in leadership? Well, if you're a soldier, you've already shown devotion to your country. You've bled for your country. If you're a landowner, you have a lot of stake in the game. Whatever happens politically affects your property. So he says the next best form is a democracy. The third best form is an oligarchy. What's that? That's where the rich rule. Why is it good for Plato that the rich rule? Because the rich have stable appetites. The rich aren't hungry, they're not lacking, and so they're able to approach the issues objectively. They're able to say, what is best for everyone? Because they're not controlled as much by their personal appetites. The worst form of government other than a tyrant, says Plato, is democracy. The rule of the masses or the poor who have unstable appetites, okay? What he would say, again, I'm not saying I agree or disagree with this, I'm just, I'm not, Zach hates the poor. No, that's not, uh, that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying Plato hates the poor. Zach loves the poor because Christ loves the poor, okay? Plato, though, is not a Christian, he hates the poor. What he would say is when you rule with the masses, you have people with unstable appetites ruling. If you're hungry and you don't have a place to live, guess how you're gonna vote in a way that benefits you, whether it's good for others or not, is what Plato would say. And then the worst form of government would be a, a tyranny, tyranny, a ruler with bestial appetites who holds power. Just something to think about. Let, let me ask it stronger. Do you believe that most people are smart or dumb? It's okay to say it. Dumb, okay. Are most people saved or lost? Then why on earth would you want the majority to rule? Number two. Isn't this fun? This is so fun. I'm so sweaty. Okay. Number two, how much of world history has held to a separation of church and state? We, I mean, that's, a, that's an important thing in the U.S. system. How much of world history has held to separation of church and state? Almost none of it, right? They would say that's impossible. What happens is you don't really get the separation of church and state. You get the state reading secular values back onto the church. Just something to think about. For most of world history, you belong to, if you belong to England, you're Anglican. You belong to the Germany in the uh, Reformation. You belong to the Lutheran Church in Germany, whatever it is. Uh, even today, in a lot of those countries, you still pay taxes to the church, even if you're an atheist or whatever. But in the U.S., you don't have that. Number three, should everyone have an equal vote? You say, well, yeah, Zach, everyone should have an equal vote. Well, let me challenge that real quick. Let's say you've got one guy who's a Christian, who's godly, and he has a Ph.D. in economics, and he owns a bunch of land. And then you have another guy who's a non-Christian that belongs to the KKK. You really think they should both have an equal say in what happens in government? One knows way more about government than the other. One's way more moral than the other. One has land. One owns more of America. So shouldn't they have a say in what happens in America? Just something to think about. I'm going to combine numbers four and six because I'm running low on time. And this is something that's really, really big, especially today. So pay attention. Everyone says that they are for equality. Let me mention a few things about that. First of all, are all types of equality good? They're not. So when I meet somebody and they say, 
I think we should have equality. And I say equality in what areas? And they say every area. I say everyone should have equal intimate access to your spouse. Well, no, not that. Everyone should have equal access to your bank account. Well, no, not that either. Everyone should have equal access to live in your house. No, that's not what I mean. What do I really mean by equality? I just mean legal equality. You already have that, okay? So when it comes to equality, we have to ask, what does equality actually mean? And this is a huge debate with justice going on. It's a huge debate. So listen, this is really important. Everybody wants equality, but people define it differently. So I have a little chart for you because it's theological equipping time. Wait, it's been a while. It's been a few months. Da, 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 da. Okay, two really helpful ways to define equality. Let me move my notes. We're not gonna have time for q and I'm sorry. Jeff, I'm sorry, don't fire me. Um, you have formal equality. What is formal equality? It's equality before the law, okay? It means that constitutionally, you have the right to do something that other people have. On the other side, you have what is called material equality, which has to do with the end result. Let me give you a few examples of this. Uh, formal equality would say, you have the opportunity to go into business and make a bunch of money. Material equality would say, to really have equality, you have to have the same amount of money as somebody else at the end of the day. Think about back to the Cold War, think to the 70s. The way that America would say that we have equality is through capitalism. Everyone has the opportunity to go get what they want. It's harder for some people than others, but they legally are not forbidden from doing so. Whereas the communists, right, those in Marxist, the USSR, they would say that's not equality at all. In fact, we as the USSR have true equality because everybody here has the same amount of stuff. That difference of equality is why you're seeing churches and culture tear each other up over the race issue and over other things. Jeff will talk more about this next week. That is a big deal. What do you mean when you say equality? Let me give you an example. Formal equality says if an African-American applies to Harvard, Harvard cannot tell that person you cannot come to the school because of the color of your skin, assuming that the academics and everything are the same as everybody else. That would actually be inequality if that African-American was told you can't come to Harvard because of the color of your skin. Material equality would say unless you have the same number of black students at Harvard as white students, then you've not done equality. Notice, one is defining equality before the law. One is defining equality constitutionally. The other says equality has to do with the end result or the starting point, okay? The end result or the starting point. Does that make sense to you? This is huge, okay? This is huge. I'll give you an example. Um, some types of equality actually promote inequality. Let me ask it this way. Is affirmative action equality? Is that treating everyone the same? Or is it not treating people the same? Or I'll ask this other one. You guys know what the three-fifths compromise is? The three-fifths compromise is where they counted black people as only being in the South. They counted black people as only being three-fifths of a person. It is a horrible thing. It is a stain on American history. It is bad and evil, okay? Who pushed for the three-fifths compromise, the North or the South? The North, okay? Remember, don't think South racist, North not racist. In the 1800s, by today's standards, everyone's a racist, okay? The North, when Abraham Lincoln freed the slaves, a large amount of the Union army left because they were not fighting to free the slaves, they were fighting to preserve the Union. Even after the slaves were freed, the North did not allow them the right to vote, they did not allow them to interracial marriage or a bunch of these other things, okay? So again, at this time, by today's standards, everybody's a racist, North or South. It was the North, though, that said we only want to count black people in the South as three-fifths of people. It was the Southerners that said, no, let's count them as full people. Why? 
Because then you would get more representation in Congress. The House of Representatives is based off of population, whereas the Senate is based off of two senators from each state. One is more uh, democracy, the number of people. The other is more republic. It's more, uh, it's more states' rights. And notice those two are at odds. So black people in the North had more equality than black people in the South because of the three-fifths compromise. You see, some types of equality actually end up removing equality from other types of people. Number seven, or I'm sorry, number five. Now, some of you are like, get them, Zach. Again, you're the Ron Swanson, you're the super libertarian. You think, I can do legally, not morally, but I can do legally whatever I want with my body and whatever I want with my property. Well, let me ask you a few questions if that's you. If you think you have a right to do what you want with your own property or person, do you have a right to suicide? Do you have a right to be a prostitute? Do you have a right to take illegal drugs? If all the farmers across America decided to burn all their crops, thus leading people to starving, does the government have a right to step in and take their land or to make them farm for others? If one person created the only cure for a deadly disease, let's just call it COVID, do others have a right to take it from him if he won't sell it? Ooh, interesting. Number seven, in what ways is a democratic republic different than the government described in the Bible? Now, this is really important. In the Bible, if a king says something to you, you just follow it because they're the king and you don't get to question. America is different because in a democratic republic, you have a say. So the government has actually said you have a right to protest. It's not against the law. You have a right to assemble. You have a right to petition. You have a right to challenge the laws. So notice the way that we follow commands with the government is a little bit different in our system than even in the Bible. Because in the Bible, a king says it, you just follow it, that's it. In America, we have a system of checks and balances. How can, how can you appeal a court case? And the, the whole idea is that somebody else can overrule this guy. You think this guy's the law, but they might have misinterpreted something. They might have not given you justice, so you can go to the next person. When open carry became legal in Texas, which is with your license to carry, you can also carry a gun openly, the law required that it be in a shoulder or belt holster. If I want to put it in a shoulder holster and tape it to my head and challenge the law, I can. Now, I might be wrong and convicted, but I don't know what the law is until I've challenged it, okay? By the way, the answer to that question, the uh, Attorney General of Texas said it has to be on a belt or holster, not on a thigh, and the Assistant Attorney General said it can be on your thigh because that's attached to your belt. So they don't even agree on those kind of things, okay? So keep in mind, we live in a system that is meant to be tested. It's meant to be pushed. It's meant to be questioned. One authority can top another authority. The cities can say shut down. The governor can say nope, open up. And so it is just trickier applying laws today than it is in the Bible. Number eight, is individual freedom more important than communal good or communal freedom? So here's a good thing to ask. Would you like to have some of your freedom taken away if it would benefit others? Or do you think the highest value is individual freedom? Okay, to ask it another way. Say another way, you give up some rights when you join an HOA. So if you have an HOA with your home, you give up some rights right, so that your neighbor doesn't put a neon Bud Light sign in their yard, you've given up some of your rights. But why did you do that? For the communal good. Is that something you should be doing? If you have a neighbor who doesn't have enough money to go to the doctor or doesn't have enough money for food for his kids and you're building a swimming pool, do you have an obligation to give them that money? Number nine, all people are equally valuable. Yes and amen, all people of all races and ethnicities are made in the image of God, but are all cultures equally valuable? What about a culture that practices cannibalism? What about a culture that says other cultures are inferior? Are they equally valuable? And then lastly, 
this question. And then we might have two minutes. Jared, if you want to do a few quick Q&A questions, you get geared up. Jeff, don't fire me. We'll do this. Last question. Is the government's job primarily to protect our personal safety or to protect our liberties? What a great COVID question. Is the government's job to protect your liberties or is it to protect your personal safety? Okay, that's an important question. I don't want to downplay this, but I want to say something pastoral, okay? With the pandemic that's going on, COVID is worse than the flu. For everybody that says it's just the flu, stop saying that, okay? It is, especially for older people, more deadly than the flu. So stop saying it's just the flu. Also, stop pretending that it's a conspiracy theory. It's not a conspiracy theory or a hoax, okay? It's real. So you do need to take precautions. Having said that, this year, twice as many people will die from diarrhea than from COVID. Does the government have a right to shut things down during a pandemic? Yes, but how deadly does the pandemic need to be? 1.6 million people die from diarrhea every year. So far worldwide, about 600,000 people have died from COVID. That's an expanded number, but it's about that. Three million people die every year from car crashes. So does the government have a right to tell a church not to meet for a disease that will kill one-fifth the amount of people that normally die in car wrecks each year? But Zach, part of the reason it's not deadly is because we've done these practices. I'm fine with that. I get that. But I think you also get my point. You also get my point. We've set a very scary precedent that says when something is not very deadly, but deadly to some, everyone's rights go away. You can't work your job. You can't provide for your kids. Is the government's job to protect your liberties or is it to protect your personal safety? All fun things. This is just the intro lecture, okay? This is just the intro. This is just to whet your appetite for the others. They'll be a lot more fun. Let's do some Q&A. Jared, we have a few minutes. Like two? You guys don't mind staying four minutes over, do you? I didn't think so. Okay. We don't, you don't have to pick up your kids from childcare. <laughs> Sorry about that. We're working on it. We want to open up as soon as we can. Be patient with us. Okay. Uh, we don't have any time for questions, but Jeff told me to tell you you're fired. Okay. This is the way I'd want him to do it. I'd want to go out in a blaze of glory. I would jump off the stage. Yes. Okay. All right, let's pray, and then y'all will be dismissed. Almighty God, we thank you for this semester. We just pray that you'd bless it. I pray where even this lesson has been maybe more offensive than it needed to be. I pray that it wouldn't be. I pray that these things would be offensive because they're difficult questions, that uh, people most debate religion and politics, and we are combining both. And so uh, I pray that you'd help us. I pray that you'd help us be open-minded. I pray that you would help us uh, wrestle through these issues well. We thank you for the semester. I pray uh, a blessing on anybody here who's just going through a lot of stress. This is a difficult season. An election year with the racial tensions, with pandemic, all those kind of things. I pray that you would just, uh, would you comfort our hearts because we have so many struggles, we have so many doubts, yet you've been good to us. We confess that there are many, many days when we've been stressed out and you've provided. There are times where we've lost jobs and you've provided. There are times where we've gotten sick and you've healed us. You are faithful. Would you help us in Christ's name? Amen.